Hi, I'm Dr. Christopher Witt, and this is Margins, where we have conversations with change agents. A couple of months ago, I had the pleasure of talking with my friend, Dr. Melanie Price, about her book, The Race Whisperer, Barack Obama and the Political Uses of Race. Melanie is also an associate professor of Africana Studies at Rutgers University. Our conversation was great, and it led us in a lot of different directions, but we still had a lot more to talk about. So I'm very happy to have my friend Dr. Melanie Price back to join me today to talk a little bit more about some of the issues we covered the first time, as well as just the general ideas of being professors while black. Melanie, thanks so much for joining us again. So happy to be back. Yeah, we had so many different things that that we talked about on on really the the larger scale. Mm -hmm. Uh, Last time you were here, we were really talking about issues of race and identity in the age of Obama and how that really rolls into what we're living with now uh, with the Trump presidency. And a lot of times when we talk about those bigger things, we sometimes forget uh, to have discussions or don't have the time to have discussions Mm -hmm. about what that means for individuals. And I mean, here at Margins, we really try to focus on having these conversations with change agents, people who are members of communities that have been traditionally marginalized, or at the very least, people who are interested in issues of importance to them. And I think that for both of us, as black political scientists, uh, people who folks at our institutions come to, people in our communities come to for insights, guidance, and, and many times leadership, that we're living in an interesting time. Uh, would you agree? Right. I would. I mean, one of the things that I tried to make very clear over the last two semesters with my students in particular, because I see them as the people for whom I have the most uh, patience with, like in my world, people in my classroom are the space where I allow people to do way more than I would in other places. I do way more teaching about race. I do way more sort of anti-racist educating. I have to do all of that stuff in class because these are the people that I'm going to, I'm charged with sending out into the world. And I tried to be clear with them over the last year that I am processing this stuff in real time. And I'm old enough to have lived a very different life and be in a very diff- different generation than them. But I'm at, we're actually living in a point in American history that it doesn't look familiar to me. It's not like any point that I've ever grown up with. Um, my mother was raised in the Jim Crow South and she was, you know, was a, went to segregated schools. And so she saw more overt forms of racism way more than I did. And I grew up in Texas. It's not like I grew up in a place where people would think you were immune to race. But I will say that I grew up in a large, caring African-American community. I went to to historically black college. I went to black churches where people valued the fact that I was smart. They valued the fact that I was a good student and they pushed me to go further. And I didn't have to walk around sort of thinking about the ways in which racial violence and racial hostility might visit me at any given moment. I knew it could happen. I've actually experienced racism, both overt and subtle forms of racism. I've I've experienced them both. But it wasn't as if I thought about it it coming into my life daily. You know, I've been called the N-word. I've been told that, you know, I'm not black enough. I've been told that I'm too black. I've been told all of those things. But to actually have a, a live in a space where you're not expected as an ordinary citizen to abide by certain kinds of racial, a certain kind of racial civility. That is, for most of my growing up in the 1980s and 90s, even if you were a racist, most people understood that it was uncool 
right? It was uncool to be a public racist. It was uncool to say publicly that you thought black people were not as smart. It was uncool to say that you thought that Latinos were not as smart or were lazy or that you thought Asians were. Like, it was uncool to say those things. But even before the election of Trump, you have Antonin Scalia, who was a Supreme Court justice, who's saying that he thinks that maybe black kids from inner cities should stop trying to aim for these elite schools because maybe they just can't handle it. And I'm trying to tell my students, while you're processing this, I'm processing it as well. And so sometimes on one day, I might come in here so angry and I might come in here angry and say things that if I thought about them a little longer, I might change my mind. If I thought about them a little longer, they might be more solid positions that I hold. But the thing I want you to see about this in the in the whole process is me going through the thought process of what it means to be a humane person living in a in a moment where people are questioning the humanity of people who look like me or people who are somehow different than what we think America, what mainstream America thinks Americans should look like. And I mean, that, that whole idea of processing yeah. is something that really a lot of times is missing Mm -hmm. when we look in higher education across the United States, when we talk about all of the the work or efforts that's put into diversity, inclusion, and um, equity uh, issues uh, at various institutions, we end up seeing that a lot of times the processing is missing, that we just want to have responses, that the people who are doing the work as the professors, the people who are in student affairs, the people who are doing all of the diversity work in any shape, form, or fashion, that a lot of times they're having to process things, that just like the students are processing and sometimes they're speaking out or acting out, that people who are engaged in leading the students and educating the students, that they sometimes feel that barrage. I I know that when I take a look at the television and I see some of these things that that were said in the 2016 campaign, things that have been said in recent years, particularly with the explosion of social media, in terms of people really coming out from the shadows and and being very forward Mm -hmm. with their racial misconceptions or their racist uh, misconceptions, it really opens up space for a lot of young people to move into that direction uh, in a way that really wasn't as available before. And, and we have to be careful with that. And we have to process that because we're human. And sometimes we feel like we're under attack while we're trying to do that work. So you have all of these things swirling around. You know, it's interesting. When I first started uh, teaching, probably 15 years ago, around 15 years ago, there was a lot of kids who were like, race doesn't matter anymore. Why are we always focused on race? And why? But part of the thing that I realized that was happening is there was a way in which parents were trying to protect their children by not talking about racism, by not. So when our parents were growing up in, in the Jim Crow era, they were taught how to be citizen, racial citizens in this country because not being the proper racial citizen could get you killed. Right. But also being the proper racial citizen could get you killed. Right. Emmett Till got killed because he was allegedly doing something that was wrong, according to racial codes. And so people thought it was really important for you to explain to children, here's how race works in America. 
And then there was a point where people thought, I'm going to protect my kids from that. Why do little kids need to think about race and racism? And part of the thing that they also didn't learn in that moment was how to identify race and racism, right? How to identify things that were potentially racist, how to identify when in their own lives they were experiencing things because of race and racism. And now these kids who are in our classes now, the difference between when I first started and now is that these kids have no choice but to confront that. And so they're asking to, we're asking them to process things that many of us have not thought about or have not explicitly talked about. And it's emotional as well as it is scholarly for me. I am not detached from the community that I live in the in the black community. I study the black community. Those things are not separate for me. And so trying to understand things while I'm standing in front of predominantly white classes, trying to figure out how to explain to them how I feel when I walk into a classroom and have to talk about Charleston or I walk into a classroom and I have to talk about Jordan Davis or Jordan Edwards or Michael Brown or any of these things or trying to talk to them about why we should be saying the names of people like Rakia Boyd and Sandra Bland. Sandra Bland went to the same undergrad as me. And so when I watch that video, I watch that video in horror, but I also watch that video recognizing those streets. I'd gone up and down that street a million times, going to parties, moving my stuff into school, moving my stuff out of school. And so I'm watching that not as a disinterested citizen. And so when I walk into class, I'm going to tell you what I think. I'm going to tell you what scholars have said, but I'm also going to talk to you a little bit about the emotions of it. Right. Because you I'm a human being in front of you. You are a human being in front of me. And part of the thing that we're all doing right now is trying to live in a kind in a not a new America, but in a rebirth of a kind of hostile America to other to people who are other and people of color and people of different uh, sexual orientations and people of gender, different gender performativities. We're all trying to figure out how to live in this moment. The thing that's most concerning to me is the, it's the belligerent nature of this. Like, I think there are, nuance. there are many people right now <laughs> who take, who for them, unsettling you is a win. Discriminating against you is a win. Like all of it is a win. So if I make you feel less comfortable in your American skin, then good. If I discriminate against you or create a policy that's harmful to you, that's also good, right? So the win is goes anywhere from actually knowing that I have made you feel uncomfortable in this place to actually creating policies that make you feel uncomfortable in this place. And I mean, I know you and I are from a, from similar regions of the country. You know, your mother's roots are in Louisiana. My father's roots are in Louisiana. My family is from Texas and my family has been there for generations. What's interesting to me is the number of people who work with Breitbart and places like that for whom their families haven't been in this country as long as mine. And you tell me that it's my people who are the problem. You are standing in the White House and in the state capitol and in places that were built by the sweat of my people. And you say you're the problem. Like trying to deal with that, that's emotional. And if you expect me not to be, then you're asking of me something that is inhumane, I think. I mean, when I talk to my students and I try to remind them of 
all of the humanity that has been taken from us, mm-hmm. not just in the form of disrespect and all of those things, right. but in actual human beings right. being right. taken from us. That mm-hmm. I'll use the example of the, the four little girls right. in the church bombing in mm-hmm. Birmingham. And a lot of times the students don't recognize that Condoleezza Rice was part of that cohort. Right. She happened to not be there. And I right. talked, they all know who Condoleezza Rice is. Right. And, and they say, oh, and, and wow, you know, she's accomplished so many things. And I said, interestingly, not just Condoleezza Rice, but also Angela Davis, mm-hmm. all tied into this same mm-hmm. community. And Freeman Robowski from uh, UMBC. Right, he was, right, right. He was a little younger than them, but he was in that same community. Right. But I, I'll talk to them and I'll say, well, what if it would have been, mm-hmm. you know, Condoleezza Rice? What if it would have been one of the people that you know? And everybody's, oh, wow, you know, we would have missed out. But then I'll turn it around and say, well, what? could those four little girls have been right but we have had Mm -hmm. you know somebody who would have been another secretary of state or whatever else and then we start to go down the line and i talk to them about the things that i've done since i was 17 years old till now to bring them dr witt their professor Uh and i say well what if i would have gone to get some skittles Uh and something to drink when visiting my dad Right. My dad lived in a, in a, in an apartment complex, you right. know, not too different than uh, where Trayvon Martin's dad lived. What if that would have happened to me? They wouldn't know me. I wouldn't have done the things that they see. I wouldn't be able to connect them with whatever I connect them with. And when we start to look at things in that way, then sometimes they start to have a little bit more of an understanding of, wait a minute, we're talking about other human beings. We're talking about people with hopes and aspirations because too many times because of the freewheeling approach that we see with a Breitbart, when we see with a, some of the things said in campaigns and now mm-hmm. we're seeing even with governing mm-hmm. that just so so much disrespect and disregard mm-hmm. for communities of color and people of color that sometimes they forget the similarities. They forget the humanity. They forget the heart and soul of people that's lost is simply just a hashtag or something they see on TV. Right. I also ask them, how many times have you smoked weed and a, and a police officer passed by and you didn't feel like you had to run, right? You know, hit them where, where they're really living their lives. In what ways have you met up with a police officer doing something wrong and the police officer just gave you a warning and you walked home alive? Right. And thinking about the fact that we have children in our lives, we have been children who are trying to think this thing through. The thing that's so interesting to me is so, for instance, after Charleston happened, that went Charleston happened on a Wednesday night. That kid didn't just walk in there and guns a blazing and start shooting. He sat with them. He prayed with them. He talked to them. He asked them to pray for him. These people prayed for him. And then he killed them. So then I go to an all black church that Sunday, random white people come to show up and I'm sure they're there to show their support, but I also have never seen you before. And I'm thinking, whoa, why would you do that? In this moment where we don't know you, you show up in a place where we just saw people who welcomed in a person that they did not know who looked like you. And it's that kind of trying to understand the the emotional humanity of what people are going through now. I think that is really key. And that is just thinking through the ways in which my presence might trigger things that are that are problematic, because I believe in allies, even though I'm so sick of having discussions about what it means to be an ally. 
ally. I think we all have to be allies to each other. I try to be, when I say things about, so when I talk about all the people who have been killed by police and vigilante violence, I try to be clear that I want to throw in the names of women in that, right? Because I don't want people to think that this is just something that's happening to men. When I talk about things regarding race, I like to talk about the specific ways that Latinos, that the specific ways that Asian Americans, that South Asians, the ways in which they are experiencing race differently, but experiencing race nonetheless. And part of that is about me wanting to have an inclusive vision of both marginal societies and an inclusive vision of what America could look like. And that includes whites. I'm not trying to throw whites out of the country. I'm not trying to say build a wall around Montana and Idaho. I imagine there are no black people there. There probably are. But I'm not trying to say build a wall around those places Mm -hmm. and make America just an America with black people and other people of color. But in the same way that I'm trying to do that, I also recognize when you're when you're saying things both explicitly and implicitly that suggest that there should be a wall around the place where I live. And because you've already built some kinds of walls, policing and racial profiling. That's one. Actual walls. You look at Detroit, they built the eight mile road wall so they could get their housing values up. Right. Or you shut off whole streets. Like you build, you you shut off actual city streets in places like Los Angeles and Philadelphia where you actually put up barriers where you can't drive down certain kinds of streets to cut down on through traffic. I mean, there are ways in which all of this, where where you are constantly being reminded of the ways in which you are not welcome in a place. I don't have anywhere else. Else to go. That's why when people were talking about, you know, on election night, I'm moving somewhere else. I'm like, where am I going? My entire black family is here and then they are not leaving. Thus, I am not leaving. And I don't I don't want to go. I'm an American. With all that that entails, I take responsibility for the ways in which America is engaged in empire and we are doing things around the country that are problematic. But I also take responsibility for the fact that it is my right to be here and it is my job to ensure that you know that. And I don't apologize to anybody for being to anybody in this country for being an American who is also willing to say that there are ways in which this country has made me feel unwelcome and that the the amount or the level of unwelcomeness that I feel in the last five years has been greater probably than it has ever been in my life. I mean, in, at any institution, you mm-hmm. know, be it a, a nation, right. be, it, be it a college or university, mm-hmm. I mean, we really need to strive towards people of all different backgrounds really having a, fe- a feeling of full ownership. Right. And even if you're not to that feeling of full ownership or the reality of full ownership, that's where we need to aim for. Because so many times when we've made big strides in the United States, when we've made positive strides, right. it's been when people have demanded right. more. When, they've de- when they haven't given up and said, well, I'm leaving. They haven't just said, well, I'm throwing my hands in there and that's it because I don't like who was elected here or what was said there. It's to say, no, now I'm going to hunker down because this is just as much my America as it is your America. It is our America, mm-hmm. but I need to be treated fairly. I need to be treated as fully American. And too many times we see people thinking that there's an option to not do that. And when people actually take that step back, that's when we all take multiple steps back. We should also be clear that historically, whenever there's been a huge leap forward in terms of some kind of uh, social 
social policy. So a huge leap forward racially, a huge leap forward in terms of gender politics. There's also been a backlash regarding that, right? So they all go together. The backlash is as much a part of it as the progress forward. And so in some ways, we knew that there was going to be a backlash against Obama. Nobody suspected that it would be this backlash. Yes. I mean, it's something that we all have to deal with. Um, when we pay attention to national politics, it's also something that we have to deal with in our day-to-day lives. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that that would be a place where we'll end up needing to, to cut off, even though I'm sure we could talk right, right, all right. day. I was like, let's go back to something. But that, no, that's right. <laughs> we'll, we'll, have to, we'll have to figure out a way to do this once again. Because that would we, be great. We have so many things to talk about. But thank you again for joining us again, Oh, no, uh, thank Dr. you so Price. much for having me. It was great. All right. Take care. Thank you. Thanks again to Dr. Melanie Price for joining us today. And we had a great conversation once again here on Margins. 